0: tas <laughs> tas Famer from the class of 2014, part of the Songwriting Hall of Fame, part of the best selling duo of all times. Let me repeat that. He's part of the best selling musical duo of all times. Look, I can go on for a long time, this whole intro, just talking about the accomplishments that our guest on today's podcast has. But let me just say that he's an American treasure. And better than that, he's an outstanding, outstanding human being. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the J. Rod Concerts podcast. And today, it is an absolute honor to welcome a jewel of American music, Mr. John Oates. Of course, he's better known as part of the um, of the duo Holland Oates. But you know, he's got such an amazing life story. Uh, he was born in New York. And his musical journey is something that uh, very, very, very few artists have managed to do in, in rock and, and soul history. And um, you're going to see through his life story that it's really, he's way more than a rock and roller. He's, he's just a multi-musical, gifted, uh, carnival sound of a man. And his personality is outstanding. It was an honor to have John on, as a guest on today's podcast. Uh, some great stories in here. Stay tuned for the um, for the stories of Live Aid, epic moments, performing with Mick Jagger and the infamous Tina Turner pulling the skirt moment, um, as well as some of his solo work, including the uh, the fantastic the fantastic uh, album Arkansas, which I strongly recommend you guys listen to. It is a super underrated musical gem. But uh, guys, without further ado, this is uh, John Oates. As a guest on the J Rod Concerts podcast, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, him sure. covering out a little piece of your schedule for us. Look, you're no you're on, look, I could spend the entire hour just saying accolades of who you are rock and roll Hall of Fame songwriter for Hollow Notes, part of the best selling duo of all times. I really could spend just an hour just roaming them down, okay, songwriting, Hall of Fame, the whole thing. Let's just say you're an American treasure, John, and we are just uh, honored to have you on the show.
1: Well, make sure if I'm a treasure, make sure you dig me up every once in a while, all right?
0: (laughs) All right, sounds good. (laughs) Sounds good, John. So, look, I want to touch on a lot of of subjects, and I know you're a busy guy, so, so let's get to it. Um... But man, you have, you, your story has so many angles and everything is so fascinating. Uh, I want to touch on many, but, but but let's start here. Let's start with a, with a few current events that obviously I, I think I, I have to touch on, John. Um, first of all, you know, this is, a, I think, a transformational time in our country and, uh, and in the world with, uh, I think, there seems to be a lot of energy in the social movements uh, going on right now. Uh, it seems to be different. So yeah. just wanted you to, your thoughts on that a little bit on the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and and all that.
1: Well, you know, I'm um, I'm a student of history, and uh, I was a you know I was a, I was a history major, and uh, you know I'm and, and very and actually very very much involved uh, you know interested in American history. So when I think back on, on American history, I, th- I I have to go back to the basic principles, you know, um, because a lot of those principles were were so um, in, you know they came from the period of what was called the Enlightenment. And for the time, of course, there were enlightened ideas because they were um, it was a revolutionary concept of democracy which was unheard of in the world you know uh, when the world was ruled by kings and things like that. but that being said, um, you know all those uh, all those uh, founding fathers were white, they had an agenda, and just like politics of today and it's really never changed. Uh, people who uh, tend to be in power always have some sort of personal and, uh, you know, a communal agenda that they want to push forward. So now that brings us up to today. And um, I have to say that I am uh, it's very important for me to know that America will always stand as a beacon of liberty and personal freedom. I think that's what's what the the, if you really strip away all the other stuff, you know, um, it's all about personal freedom and it's also about personal liberty and and a right to choose. And I think a lot of that um, is being not only not necessarily thwarted, but I think a lot of that is being compromised by these personal agendas uh, and those personal agendas, they, they they have to do with governmental personal agendas. They have to do with, um, you know, groups of people's personal agendas and everyone has a valid, you know, a valid argument for what they want to push forward. So... In the end, you know, rather than talking about specific politics, because I, 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 I would rather talk about the fact that everyone needs to be sensitive to each other. I think yeah. it's important to be sensitive to people who are different from you or have a different agenda, to, under, to try to understand and keep an open mind and keep the lines of communication open, to try to understand what it is that is bothering them, what they want changed, What they want to see different and to try to understand them with a sympathetic and and try to uh, to be more open minded about it. It's when we're closed minded and when we do not uh, listen is when we have problems. And I think that's, you know, I I would rather talk about it on those broader terms and those universal terms than actually get into specifics about it.
0: I, I like it. And I think we should all think like that. Very well said, John. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so, so let's move on to a little lighter subject now. How has this year been for you, for John Oates, you know, starting in January when we all thought, ah, great, new decade. What are we, well, and been, then moving forward? Yes,
1: it, It's been, if you, if you want to say, if you've ever had the rug pulled out from under you, I think, I think we can all say that in some way we've had the rug pulled out from under us. Um, in my personal experience, it was a very incredible and exciting, interesting year. You know, it began with me recording a live album with my band on January 9th here in Nashville. And it's a, it's called The Good Road Band. And nominal uh, album, yeah. Yes. And it's it's um, it's going to culminate in a live album that we're going to release in September. Uh, so this was two, almost two and a half, three years of hard work putting this band together of, of guys who never really played with each other and creating this, you know, a band is, is more than the sum of its parts, you know. It, it's just like a great sports team. You know, you can have all these superstars. But unless you play as a team, it's, it's something different. So sure. uh, it's been a great uh, feeling of accomplishment for me to put this band together and, and great, get this great band happening. So that happened in January. And I was really glad we captured it and we have it recorded. And that will get released in September. But then moving forward, uh, the, um, in February, Daryl and I prepared this incredible tour for a 40-city national tour with the group um, Squeeze and the great KT Tunstall, who is going to open for us. Yes. And it was arenas and big venues across the country. It was look, look, looking to be a sellout. So we started with a, um, a warm-up show in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which was fantastic, sold out. And we went right to Madison Square Garden. Sold out Madison Square Garden. Had this incredible night. We thought, oh, wow, this is so great. What a way to start this tour. And that was when the rug went. Wow. Like this. Because that was February 28th.
0: So you so, got to play the garden show. We played
1: the garden, and that was the first show on the tour, and that was the last show on the tour. So, needless to say, um, it was, it was you know, whoa, okay, now how do we readjust this? And <laughs> shortly after that, the first weekend of March, I went to this great car event called Amelia Island Concord d'Elegance, which is a, something I've been involved with for three years, and I was a judge, and, a, you know, I have a lot of friends in the uh, motorsports world who go yes. to it. and. Here's 60,000 people all coming to Amelia Island, all literally shoulder to shoulder, enjoying this beautiful Florida weekend. The weather was perfect. And that was it. That was really the last thing that I did after that. Um, And uh, as I said, it felt like the rug was pulled out from under us. And since that time, uh, I've been home. And I realized that this is the longest I've been home in my entire professional career since the early 70s. Yeah yeah so, um, absolutely. I remember about two weeks in, um maybe two and a half, three weeks in, I woke up one morning I said, "So this is what retirement's like, eh? I,
0: said, <laughs> I-, I don't like it <laughs> You don't like it no, you've been going up like since you I know since it. Philadelphia back in the day Wow. I love to
1: work. I love to work, I love to be creative, I love to keep moving forward,
0: yeah. Well, and we appreciate that for sure. We're the big winners of of you always moving and bringing out new stuff. So are you in Colorado or are you in Nashville? No, no,
1: I'm in Nashville right now. We're actually getting ready to go to Colorado. We haven't been out there in a while. We wanted to wait until for flights and things like that. But um, I've been writing a ton. Uh, One thing, one advantage of being home is that I got a chance to really uh, get more introspective musically and Mm. started to think about the song, the type of songs I was writing, uh, the style of songs. And I wanted to go back to, um, I wanted to go back to writing something that was meaningful, not only topical about, you know, because yeah. a lot of the inspiration had to do with being uh, isolated. Um, and I didn't, you know, w- without getting too morbid or too, uh, you know, too depress- depressing about the subject, I wanted to use that as a catalyst to, to talk about something bigger. And yeah. so uh, it, it really g- kick-started my songwriting process, and I've written a lot of songs.
0: Amazing. Can't wait. Can't wait to see whether uh... What comes out of this period for you, John? Just want to touch on your early life a little bit. Um so your mom Anna, uh, Italian immigrant from Salerno, uh really stunning place, one of the most picturesque, beautiful places in the world. Your father came from English and Moroccan blood. So yeah. I'm just curious, when you guys were growing up in, in Philadelphia in the suburb, um, what type of culture was inside from your doors in? Was it like you know, all these cultures with food, with holidays, or did you guys just kind of wrap your arms around America and like?
1: Well, well my, my, my father's father was, as you said, was English, but he was stationed on the Rock of Gibraltar. He married a, a Spanish woman of, mm. of Moorish Spanish blood. So she was technically Spanish, uh, but she lived on the Rock of Gibraltar. So we had, we had that two sides of the family, but in most, as in most of families that I, at least in my experience, the mother's side always seems to win. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you in your family, but uh,
0: it's a universal law.
1: Am I right? Okay. <laughs> um, so we, we were we we actually gravitated more toward the Italian side of the family, mm. and I had an Italian grandmother who uh, I was very close to. And being the um, the first male son in a predominantly Italian family, you know, needless to say, I wore the crown. You know, um, sure. The chosen one. And, uh, So I was. You know, I had some great experiences with my grandmother. She didn't speak English very well, so she spoke to me in Italian, and I, I can't really speak Italian, but I understand it because mm. she would always talk to me in Italian. And I was the only one allowed in the kitchen do it when she was cooking.
0: That's and, and that's a said, very important place. That's very important. Yeah, he yeah.
1: would he would always save say, say, uh, save me the first meatball, <laughs> so. She took the meatball out of the pot and she would give it to me and on a plate, you know. So it was, uh, you know, it was a very special way to grow up. And I think in a way being, you know, having that kind of feeling of being special, I think that kind of bolstered my ego and in a way, you know, even as a child, I didn't know that, of course, Mm. but I think it gave me a self-confidence that um, perhaps, you know, I wouldn't have had had that not happened.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was around this age, maybe, that you start getting um, influenced by Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, The Temptations, Curtis Mayfield, all that stuff, right? The, how well, how I, did you get involved with all these uh, records?
1: Well, it was it was way earlier than that. When when I was a really small child, I, I sang as a baby, as a little kid. I have a recording of me singing a, a children's nursery rhyme, Here Comes Peter Cottontail, no um, at, in Coney Island uh, at the amusement park in one of those booths, there's phonograph booths, you'd walk in, you'd put money in, you'd sing, and then a record would pop out of the side of the thing. I still have that record. Wow. Um, So so my parents kind of uh, recognized that I had some sort of musical talent. And as a very small child, you know, we lived in Pennsylvania, but the rest of the family was in New York. Every weekend, we drove from Pennsylvania to New York because my my parents were lonely with their friends and family, and we would listen to big band music. So my first music experience was pre-rock and roll. I'm old enough to remember music before rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And so I you know, when I think of music, I don't think necessarily, it doesn't start with rock and roll for me. It starts prior to rock and roll. And I see the evolution into the early days of swing and doo-wop into rock and roll. And then of course, you know, it was Chuck Berry and Little Richard and uh, Elvis and, you know, and so on and so forth. Moving up to the 60s where of course, it was the R&B and the Delta Blues and the Roots, uh, the roots music that came from the Deep South. So, you know, I, I see music in a, 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 in a very holistic way. I see American music in terms of its, it's, you know, where it started and how it evolved, you know. And that's very much, a, it's very interesting for me.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I, I think we, we see a lot of that full circle in, in Arkansas in, in your um. And we'll get to that in a second, John. But I uh, have to ask you the uh, an obligatory hollow notes question. Maybe so I mean it's a classic story how you met uh, Daryl. But maybe a lot of my uh, of my uh, of the people that uh, follow me they don't know it. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that famous night uh, when you were both invited to the Adelphi Ballroom and, uh-huh. and what transpired?
1: I see you've done your homework. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Daryl and I, uh, Daryl and I. You know, the Philadelphia music scene was quite small in the sixties. And um, Gamble and Huff were just getting started. They were basically just out of their teenage years. They hadn't become the Gamble and Huff that we all know today. Um, Daryl had a group called the Temptones, and he was, uh, he was being produced by Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. And yeah. so he went into a small studio and made a single uh, called Girl, I Love You. And I had a group called the Masters, which was basically my high school group. That I had played with all through high school and we pulled together our money and went to a uh, a small studio on North Broad Street in Philadelphia and we recorded our single called I Need Your Love Mm -hmm. both those singles were being placed played on Philadelphia R&B radio at the time so to promote those singles uh, and we didn't know each other we knew of each other but we didn't know each other and to promote those singles we were uh, individually invited to the Adelphi Ballroom where um, a guy named Jimmy Bishop, who was one of the top DJs in R&B radio, was having a teenage dance called a record hop in those days. Um, But it was in a bad area, a bad neighborhood in Philadelphia. And uh, we were waiting to go on. We were backstage. It was uh, Daryl's group, my group, the Five Stair Steps from Chicago, and an R&B singer named Howard Tate, who had a really cool song called Look at Granny Run Run, which your fans should look up because it's cool. And we were all kind of, you know, in this very small room and before any of us got a chance to go on and lip sync our singles uh, (laughs) a gang fight broke out and there was shots and screams and we you know we were like okay we're out of here me and daryl's group and my group we got into an elevator and went straight down to the street level and we walked out on the street we're like okay we're out you know we're out of here hey man i you know i saw you yeah you're where? yeah you temple university yeah i see you now it was one of those things very quick and then we ran into each other. Uh, we were both going to Temple University and we ran into each other. Daryl's group subsequently broke up. My group broke up. He and I gravitated toward each other and we began to just hang. Uh, it wasn't formalized in any way. We didn't really even make music. We, we shared apartments. We had mutual friends. We hung around together. And later on, we kind of got together formally. That was, but That was until 1970. So for two years, we just kind of hung out.
0: Amazing. Amazing, and of course, Hall of Notes was the the name It was written on the on the mailbox, right? Where you guys lived? Well, our first
1: apartment that we shared
0: together. Yeah, exactly. unbelievable, unbelievable. So that's awesome, John. One more Hall of notes question. You guys obviously played the world, biggest stadiums, arenas. Just want to ask you about a couple of um, maybe shows that fans may not know about that um, that were crucially important or huge for you personally, like maybe we can start with Live Aid, like to give like, like to give you an example, right? But maybe some that fans don't know, uh, something special?
1: Well, I mean, Live Aid obviously was very mm-hmm. important because it was the first time that a major uh, rock concert had been broadcast, simulcast around the world. Now, nowadays we, we take this stuff for granted. Of course, you and I are talking over the internet. With the, <laughs> you know, we, can, we can reach the entire universe, but in those days that, that didn't happen. So it was revolutionary. Um, because it was in Philadelphia, there was, there was one show in London. And then later in the day, because London was earlier, later in the day, the, the, the American show was in Philadelphia at the big football stadium. And um, so being from Philadelphia, of course, Daryl and I, and being at the top of our kind of pop, you know, success at the time, we were asked to headline the show. And we wanted to do something special. So we brought out Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, the former lead singers of The Temptations, who we had done a show at the Apollo Theater with prior to that. And then Mick Jagger at the time had a solo album out, so he wasn't working with the Stones. And he asked us if we would back him. And, uh, and he was going to bring Tina Turner out as a, as a guest. Uh, of course, we did not know that he was going to rip her skirt off in the process of doing <laughs> yes. performance. Which was total surprise and very very cool. So if you ever see the clip, you'll see that. Um, but so we had this incredible headlining spot with we brought out a we, we did a set on our own brought out Eddie, Eddie and David. We reprised the, the Apollo Temptations medley, and then Mick Jagger came out to close the show with Tina Turner. And so you know there was seventy thousand people, and it yeah. was amazing. You know uh, that's all I can say. Uh, if you look at the, the lineup of, of artists on that show, it was staggering. So, I mean, the um, moments you're
0: cool. mentioning are stamped in rock and roll history. You know, so yeah. many like you know, you two sure. when when they did their thing in Wembley, and Freddie Mercury, and you guys stand right above it. Sure,
1: it was amazing, and you know, there was you know, at our show it was Dylan and uh, Madonna and Neil
0: Young and I'm um, uh, Betty. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the list goes on and on. I can't even. Um, unbelievable john so i want to talk to you about a couple of your solo albums amazing pieces um i want to talk to you about an- another good road which was like that dvd tv special that was on palladia but you can find it online for those that are uh, scouring really really special stuff it was filmed in uh it has bits of pieces of your colorado of your colorado place really beautiful thing and i loved um the stuff the staff that you put together you know you, you put Be- becca bramlett who toured with fleetwood a couple of years in the 90s you had wendy moton as well um how do you look back on this project almost five years after it came out now? John.
1: Well, I, I made an album called Good Road to Follow. It, it, the, the idea, you know, I, I love to drive, but in addition to, to driving, I like the, the, the metaphor of a road because it's, it's a road, you know, in a symbolic way that takes you somewhere. And so music for me has taken me to places I could never have imagined. So the, the Good Road to Follow concept was an album that I did where I reached out to people I liked and people I thought were really interesting. And I asked them to produce a song with me. And we had Ryan Tedder and Vince Gill and um, you know so many amazing people were involved in that record. Um, after having done that record, which was a, a three EP set, mm-hmm. I wanted to, I, I didn't really do a video. I didn't do really a live performance. So I assembled uh, a band, which actually became the beginning of the Good Road Band was the start of it. And we went into the recording studio in Nashville, and we pipe and draped it, made it look like kind of a loungy setting, but it was actually a recording studio. And that entire video was done with one camera, and it is absolutely live. Everything you see is exactly the way it happened. There was no, there's no redos, no edits, no musical fixes, nothing. Um, And I rehearsed the band, then we went in and we just played. So it's all done with one camera, it's very bare bones, but it has kind of a, an immediacy and a kind of a, yeah. a, a feeling of, because of that. And of course, having these incredible players, you know, uh, you know I had Shane Terrier, Russ Paul, uh, um, um, Steve Mackey was on bass, uh, Johnny the Clock on, dr- on drums, uh, and Becca and Wendy Moten, who sings with uh, Julio Iglesias and, um, and a million other, Vince Gill and a million other people. Uh, Kevin McKendree was on keyboards so it was just this incredible uh, group of amazing players
0: unbelievable John it's a great it's a great uh, great piece but I have to tell you my favorite uh and and really one of the best things I, I love it so much Arkansas came out in 2018 what a beautiful beautiful album John a gem and I think especially for times like these it just comes across like a breath of fresh air like a palate cleanser it's just uh just really nice stuff. You know, it has Sam Bush and mandolin. It has Ross Pollen pedal steel. Just a great piece. Tell us about your Uncle Tony, though, and the connection that he has to this album, if you will, John.
1: My Uncle Tony was a very interesting man. He was the only person in the family to ever leave the New York area. Um, he went into the service and became a, a major and then became a colonel. He was one of the first plastic surgeons in the South. He studied plastic surgery after World War II, and essentially plastic surgery was invented in World War II to try to fix the wounds of the various soldiers. Mm. Uh, So he was a very early plastic surgeon. He eventually became a professor uh, at the University of Arkansas and moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where that's where the University of Arkansas is. So uh, I went down, you know, I, I visited him on occasion, and then later in life, unfortunately, when he passed away, I, I didn't realize he had become a very um, very well-respected member of the community there, and he owned a lot of property and things like that. So he gave the property to his sisters, which was my mother and her two, her two sisters. And, you know, them be, the, being old and not understanding the details of legality and all that, it was kind of left to me to, hey, what do we do? You know, We have all this, we have, you know, 260 acres, 260 acres right in the middle of the city. You mm-hmm. know, what do what we do? Because he was kind of a hermit and he, he would refuse to ever develop it or build houses or anything like that. So, uh, you know, my my folks need, you know, they, they all obviously wanted to sell it and all that. Well, I don't want to get into too many details, but to make a long story short, we dealt with it. We sold a portion of it, but we also donated a major portion of it to a public park in his name, mm-hmm. uh, which I think he would have loved because he loved the city so much. So that my connection to Arkansas began that way but then what happened was I, I began, I wanted to do an album that was based on Mississippi John Hurt because he um, he was a very major influence on me because I got to meet him in the 60s and I actually owned his original guitar that he played in, in the 1960s. Unbelievable.
0: Did you get it <laughs> after you recorded the album? That must have been hard to track, right? Wow.
1: You know what? I wish I would have had it before I did and I would have played <laughs> the album with the guitar. That's but outstanding. I Yes, I got it right after the That's album, great. but interestingly enough, it's a guitar that I played in, in the early 1970s. It was given to my guitar teacher who used to take him around to the concerts we, after, after Mississippi John passed away. So my guitar teacher brought it to New York and I played it on the first two Hall of Notes albums.
0: Can you believe that? It's, wow. it's
1: amazing. So it came back to me and so I, I wanted to do this album. So I went in the studio, I, I recorded a few Mississippi John Hurt songs, very authentically, the way he would have done it, acoustic guitar and voice. But then I said to myself, why am I doing this? Sure, I can do it, but, eh, you know, it's been done. I'll never do it as well as the original. But then I thought to myself, these songs are amazing. I said, what if I put a band together? Because I had never heard this type of music performed with a group as opposed to just solo acoustic. So I brought the band in and we recorded the first song with Stacco Lee, which was a classic Mississippi John Hurt song. And I remember my engineer, producer, co-producer sitting to me. He goes, Johnny. He goes, I don't know what this is, but whatever it is, just keep doing it because it's really cool. And that's how it started. So having done that, I said, okay, let's let's record these songs, guys. And then I started thinking, what was the music like in 1929, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, when Mississippi John Hurt was first recorded? Because he had recorded back in those days, but then was rediscovered in the 1960s. Sure. And I said. You know, so I started looking at jukebox playlists. I started seeing the type of songs that were being played on the radio, the type of uh, early phonograph hits that were being played. I looked into the first million selling record and I thought, wow, here I am. I'm a pop musician and I don't even know what the first million selling record was. So once I started to dig into that a bit, I started to say, let me make a snapshot of this music that predates rock and roll. I did to make a snapshot of this musical world of America what, where people were listening to the radio for the first time, buying records for the first time. And what was that like? And so this was my version of that snapshot, that musical snapshot. And that's how the album evolved. Um, the title Arkansas came from a song that I wrote after having played a show in a little town called Wilson, Arkansas, just northwest of Memphis. And um, it was one of the first shows I played with the Good Road Band. And we were very, you know, it was a great night. Uh, We walked out into the moonlight, you know, uh, stood on on the blues highway, Highway 61, which runs right through the middle of town. And I thought to myself, this is, this is in some way, this kind of crystallized this American musical experience that came from the deep South, from New Orleans up the Mississippi River through the Delta and through Memphis and St. Louis on up to Chicago becoming urban blues. And I said, I, I needed to write something. I'm doing all these classic songs by other artists. I needed to write something that was my input into that. And I wrote the song, Arkansas. And of course, I titled the album.
0: Unbelievable. What an album. What a story. Thanks for sharing that, John. You've been so kind with your time. I, just before I let you go, I, d- I definitely want to ask you about one of your passions. Uh, and that is, of course, Cars, right? right. Uh, it's uh, fantastic. Uh, first of all, have you seen Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, Jerry Sansell? Oh, show. Sure. Yeah, of course yeah. you have. Okay, yeah, it's uh, for those that don't know Jerry Seinfeld is also a car yeah. aficionado. Jerry
1: Seinfeld is amazing. He has one of the world's great collections of
0: Porsches. Yeah, yeah so I have to ask a couple of questions about that. I'm not a car guy, honestly, but of course I have friends that are and people I respect them. Do you have different cars for different moods? Like, let's like, w- <laughs> what's your car to go get milk? <laughs>
1: My my car to go get milk is none of, none of the cars that I keep hidden away in the garage. I can trust me on that one. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. I I drive a um I, I'm a fan of I have to say I'm a fan of German cars. I like high performance. I like efficiency. I like high technology. Um, I have an Audi RS five Sportback, which mm. is a, a, a amazing car because it can do everything. It's it's a it's basically a big hatchback where I can put amplifiers and guitars and equipment in. Um, it can scare the living daylights out of you with with speed and power if you want and if you want to drive around and listen to the radio and be comfortable you can do that too so it's kind of a do-all kind of a great automobile um but i have some other cars that i i use when i want to drive on the country roads
0: yeah definitely like i want to ask you about the one you got for your 70th birthday real quick the red uh, you know the red rod emery like what up mm-hmm. There's no words to describe the beauty. Like, that is a jewel. I don't know. My thesaurus is malfunctioning. Anything you want to say, that car, it is. The thesaurus is
1: malfunctioning. It's malfunctioning
0: to describe that car. Jesus Christ. What a beautiful car, John. Uh, Where do you drive? Like, when's the last time you've driven it? Like, how do you manage such a car? What a a beautiful car. I
1: drove it last Saturday with some Mm -hmm. friends who took, took a drive. Um, that is a, you know, that experience it, it's, you know, the car is the culmination of the experience that went into, to building it. I, um, I was approaching my 70th birthday and, you know, being a, a car fan, I realized it was, it just happened to coincide with Porsche's 70th anniversary. The Porsche company started in 1948 and that's when I was born. And I thought, wow, kind of interesting. What if I build a car, that goes along with my birthday and the, you know, the, the origins of the Porsche. So the origins of, of the Porsche's first cars was, was the Porsche 356, that was their first model. And um, so I was in LA and I was doing what all car people do, go on the internet and looking at pictures of cars on Instagram. And uh, I ran into, I saw some cars that were built by a guy named Rod Emery in North Hollywood, California. And I, I had a day off. And I looked, I looked up his contact and I called him and I said, hey, you build amazing cars. Would you mind if I came out and looked? And he said, come on. And so I drove to North Hollywood and I went in and I, my mind was blown. I went, oh, no. And I saw these cars. In fact, I took our drummer, the whole nuts drummer with me because he's a car guy too. And he was like, John, he goes, are you getting one of these? And I said, I don't know yet, but this is amazing. <laughs> so Rod was incredibly uh, gracious and he said, would you like to drive one? So, you know, it was like, <laughs> it was like putting that gasoline needle in your arm, you know? Um, so I drove one of his cars and uh, I was like, okay, this is too much. So uh, we began the conversation. What could we do? What could we do? And uh, I told him I'd like to build a car and he said, okay. He said, tell me what you want. And we started out very simply. I said, I want a convertible. I don't know what it is yet, but I want a convertible. I said, okay. He said, let me find you one. And the first step is to find a donor car. You have to mm-hmm. find something that he can start with. He found a, a wrecked car in a barn in Texas. The front end was, was, uh, was crash, crushed in. And he said, I think I found a perfect car for you. Do you want it? And I said, yep. So I bought it. He shipped it from Texas to California and the process began. So as the process began, the first thing that had to happen was we had to fix this crushed-in front end. And it was a, I don't want to get too, too detailed, but it was a B Cabriolet, which is the middle range of the 256. Sure. But the A nose, the A cap, the A uh, model nose is a more elegant, kind of softer-looking nose. Mm-hmm. I said, well, if you're going to have to replace the nose, let's put an A nose on the B Cabriolet. And mm. that's when the hybrid, kind of the, the greatest hits concept started. Yeah. I said, okay, well, if we're going to do that, <laughs> You're no longer dealing with purity. I said, let's take the best elements of, of all the cars from the early 1950s to the mid 1960s, of all these this model car. Let's take the best elements of all these things and put them all together in one car. I bet and even I said, Rod like,
0: was like, "Take his, you were totally yes. like giving. He so, yeah.
1: He's so creative and he's so art, he's, a, he's an artistic uh, metalworking genius. And so, uh, yeah. So that's how it started, and we began to cherry pick and collaborate, and I went out there pretty much every month for almost two years, and I would see the work in progress, and we kept refining and talking. And and so as the time went on, uh, that car evolved. Um, The color of the car is spectacular. It it started with a color called graphite metallic, but Mm -hmm. it's not. Um, Because we went with this cognac brown interior, and I wanted to pick up the, the color from the interior onto the exterior paint. So we wanted to mix a bronze into it. So, so many people all over the world have been asking what that color is. And we won't tell anybody. We won't give yeah. anyone the, the code for the Magic sauce, because yeah. Because it's very, very special. Um, so it, when you see it in person, it's, it's pretty spectacular. So that's how the car evolved. It became a work of art. And uh, it's, it's absolutely, every time I, I, not even, before I even drive it, when I walk up to it, I have to pinch myself and say, "Is this really mine?" Because it's uh, it's it's very spectacular, oh, and so I'm you know I'm very proud of it, and I'm proud of the relationship even more than the car. The relationship that I developed with Rod Emery and his family, sure. and the, and his friends, and the the kind of extended family that's developed from it has been amazing. Uh, we've had some great experiences together, and uh, uh, I'm sure it's going to continue.
0: Amazing, John. I think that would be a great place to leave it. You've lived us inspired. You've uh, you've told us so much great stories and quotes. And uh, yeah, so generous for your time, John. This has been super, super enjoyable. Man.
1: Well, I, you know what I appreciate? I appreciate you really doing your homework and uh, being prepared. Is, um, I do a lot of interviews, so it's always exciting and, and more fun to talk when I know someone actually... Know, understands what's going on. So well, absolutely.
0: No, well, you're an icon. So thank you, John, and best of luck in Colorado and, and with the rest of this year. And can't wait for all the projects that you talked about.
1: Thanks, man. I well, hope to see you in Florida. All
0: right, absolutely. Take care.
1: Later. Bye.